the next two songs. Can you do that? Okay, open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 15. That's where we find ourselves this morning as we're working through the book of Mark. Mark 15. And so if you don't have a Bible, go find one. Open up your phone. Put another tab on your computer. Size up your screen so you can see the sermon and you can see the scripture. But it is important that you have that. Maybe turn other distractions off if you have uh, the TV running. Maybe turn that off and just focus on this and ask us as a church, as Lighthouse Bible Church, to focus on Mark chapter 15 this morning. I'm actually going to, for the next three weeks, um, in three weeks we'll finish our series, but for the next three weeks we'll explore the theme that Jesus is the king from Mark chapter 15 and then verse uh, chapter 16. And we're going to see this Sunday that Jesus is the king and we're going to see the rejection of the king. Next Sunday we'll see the suffering of the king. And then on Easter Sunday, isn't it great how the Lord worked this out? We're going to see the victory of the king. I think it's amazing how God works out these texts. And as you just work through the scripture, God leads us along. And in the midst of something terrible uh, that we're going through in our country, something that's, that is changing much of how people live, and maybe in the future will change our country, um, we, you might wonder, why are we preaching through something like this? Like, why would you not pick a topic like, you know, let's study the peace of God, or let's talk about maybe sickness in the Bible, what God does about it. And... I think I just want to tell you two main reasons why I believe this is what God has for us this week and the next two weeks. Number one, we as a church are committed to expository preaching, which means we believe that God wants us every Sunday morning, and of course we're not able to gather, but we're doing this over the internet, but gather on Sunday mornings to focus on the Word of God and explain the meaning of the text and then seek to apply it to our contemporary context. And so, again, this isn't a church service, um, but for now, for our time, this is how we're gathering as a church. And I'm convinced that God speaks through His Word. And the best way that we can hear from God as a church is to, to take a passage, explain that passage, and then Trust that the Holy Spirit is the one that has directed us to that passage, and he has something for us today. So I'm just convinced that, that God has something for us in this text. It's the next text in, um, in our series here in the book of Mark. Number two, I think the other reason why this is an important text for us to study is because this is probably, I think, one of the most applicable passages during our time of difficulty. This text deals with Jesus suffering, how he was abandoned by everyone, including on the cross, his own father. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus, he, he actually went through suffering and he meets us in our suffering. And, and the suffering we see in the world around us is a result of the, the curse of sin in this world. And this text shows Jesus coming into the world and becoming a curse for us, taking upon the curse of suffering, the curse of sin upon himself, so he could conquer sin and death, and he could rescue us and give us the hope of eternal life. And really the hope that someday we can be in his presence with no sin, no suffering, no crying, and no death. And so I think this text actually is a great one 
for us to meditate on because it gives us hope in the time of suffering that Jesus is the one who gives us the victory. And so this text, I believe, is speaking about the fact that Jesus is the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. In fact, I'm just going to walk through this text and show you how many times Jesus is referred to as a king. Look in Mark 14. We're going to first start in Mark 14, 61. Jesus is in the Jewish trial before the high priest. And Mark 14, 61 says, But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the, the king, the Messiah king? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And then look down in chapter 15, verse 2. He's with Pilate. So here is now Pilate. He's on trial before Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Look at verse 9. Pilate answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Look at verse uh, 12. And Pilate again said to him, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Look at verse 17. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted, this is the soldiers that are torturing Jesus, twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Look at verse 26. The inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. Look at verse 31. The chief priests and scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Of course, they said that as they were mocking him. And so here in this text of Scripture in, in Mark, the end of Mark 14 and Mark chapter 15, it's clear that this is about Jesus' claim to be king. And here in this text, though, it, it might seem like Jesus isn't king. I mean, Jerusalem is in chaos. From a human perspective, it doesn't even seem like he's really in charge. In fact, most everyone in this text was rebelling against Jesus. It seems as if everyone else was, was dominating, they were actually ruling over him. I think there are times in, in, our, in history, sometimes in our lives, where we can look around, and from a human perspective, it seems like Jesus isn't king. Like, it's chaos, and we don't know what's going to happen next, and we're concerned, we're worried, and people even ask the question, is, is Jesus on the throne? And if he's ruling, why is there so much suffering around us? And so, again, you can see how this really speaks to us here today. People ask those questions today, and the answer to those questions are found in the Word of God. And what's the answer? Is Jesus king? Is he on the throne? And the answer is yes. He is working. He is ruling. But I think the thing we have to remember is that he is working in a different way than you expect. The Jewish leaders expected a king who would, who would overthrow Rome. The people expected a king that would save himself on the cross. But Jesus was doing something greater than overthrowing a Roman Empire, he was doing something bigger than saving his own skin. He was atoning for the sin of the world. 
You see, in our suffering, we can be so narrow-minded and earthly-focused and think, why is, it, why is it Jesus ruling, doing what I think he should do? But even though you might not see what God is doing as king, he is on the throne. And his, his work is a gospel work. I saw on the Wall Street Journal this past week, there was a, a question that was asked in an article, and I didn't read the whole article because he had to pay for the Wall Street Journal, and I just don't like paying for things since I'm the internet. It's supposed to be free, right? But the question was, is there another great awakening going to happen because of the coronavirus? And it's a, it's a good question. Sometimes God works through, through suffering like this and, and some of the things our country is going through. And, and the work that God sometimes does, or I should say this way, the work that God does do is a gospel work. So in Mark 15, to the worldly-minded person, Jesus, Jesus didn't seem like much of a king. Nobody submitted to him. All lived in rebellion against him. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but they were rejecting him. But, and you think about it, doesn't a king have dominion and power? I mean, if he was a king, why didn't he just snap his fingers and, and, and make everyone bow to him? When we think about a king, a king rules over people. The people are subject to him. They follow his law. They live under his protection. When I was growing up, we would um, play King of the Mountain. You guys ever played King of the Mountain? I hated that game because I always lost. But, you know, there'd be a rock there, and you'd get on top of the rock, and you'd try to push people off. And I was small, so I always lost. But the idea of being King of the Mountain is you can, you can dominate people, you know, and you're the one that's in charge. And, and, and I never got to play the never uh, really wanted that game, so I didn't like it. But it's a great example of what really a king does. So look at Jesus here in this text. How is it that he is actually being a king? Nobody was following the Lord. They're living in rebellion in him and against him. But what's amazing about God's plan is what looks like the conquered king, what looks like he's being conquered by evil and by death, is actually Jesus conquering evil and death. I mean, from the perspective of humans, they go, well, he was conquered by, by sinful people, and he was conquered by death, but actually Jesus was using that, that evil and his death to conquer evil and death. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authority. authorities. It's talking about Satan's dominion, the demons. He, he conquered them, he disarmed them, he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. And that's speaking of the cross of Christ. So it looks like Jesus' defeat on the cross was actually Jesus' victory over Satan and hell and sin and suffering. So as we enter into this text, what we need to see is really see this from the perspective of the Lord. See this from the perspective of what is happening behind the scenes. What are the, what are the spiritual realities in this Text. One of the realities I want you to see is that all these individuals in this text were rejecting Jesus. They were living in rebellion against Jesus. And sometimes we can look at these guys and we can kind of look at them with disdain. You know, you got Pilate, you got Barabbas, and I don't know about you, but I picture him, you know, hadn't shaved in a couple days and sweating, you know, big fat or big, I guess, muscular guy and and, you know, you picture the, the religious leaders, they're these snobs, there's nose stuck in there. We can look at them, we can look down on them, but actually, I think we should try, try to identify with them. You see, these, these men, they rebelled against the Lord. 
but actually their rebellion might, you might say this way, maybe it's, it's, they have different faces and they have different backgrounds, but I think it's very similar to how we rebel against the Lord. Sometimes we like to watch TV shows, and um, especially as Americans, we like to watch these British shows where um, the British royalty is on there. You know, the, a couple years ago it was Downton Abbey, and I don't know, there's a lot of shows out there, and I don't know what the recent ones are. But, you know, we, we like to watch those kind of shows, and we picture ourselves as the Lord and the, the Countess, you know, or whatever it is, you know. And we're, we're, we don't usually picture ourselves as the, the stable hand, you know, or the person that's on the lowest chain, you know. We're... We kind of envision ourselves and put ourselves in that that position of majesty and a, that position of, of wealth. And we superimpose ourselves upon, you could say, the stars, the people of importance in there. I think sometimes we can do that with scripture too. We can we can read a text like this and we can say, oh yeah, I'm like Jesus in this text. And there's a sense where we can follow the example of Jesus, so don't get me wrong. But actually I think we should probably identify more with the people who rejected Jesus than with Jesus himself. Because like those people who rejected him, we all reject him. Timothy, or Titus 2.14 says, this is the reason Jesus came to this earth. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, or all rebellion. See, every one of us has rebelled against God. The picture of humanity in the scripture is that, is that we are the pilots. We are the Barabbases. We are the rebels against God. We break his laws. You can see it this way. We live in rebellion against the king of the universe. Just think about our, our life. Think about your own life. Think about just the, the past week, maybe even this morning, and how you interact with people Think about the laws that God has. God, God commands us to love one another as we love, as, as we should love one another. We should love him with all of our heart. And just ask yourself this question before we kind of go into this text. Ask yourself this question. Are you living under the authority of Jesus as king? I mean, are you loving the people around you? Right? This is a difficult time. You're, you're stuck with people longer than you expected to be stuck with them and and there can be a lot of stress, sometimes anger, sometimes selfishness. So are you loving people in the home that you're in? You know, God's laws are for us to trust him, to be thankful. And in times like this, we can complain. You know, I got to be around these people, and I can't go where I want to go, and can I just eat the food I want to eat? Can I go out to eat? We can complain. But actually, God wants us to be thankful, thankful for his rule in our life. And so... So I think all of us know deep down that our hearts live in rebellion against him. So I, what I want to do is just go through this text and I want to I look at these individuals, how they rebelled against God. I want for us to seek to identify with them and then also see the suffering of Christ. So let's start with a word of prayer and we'll go into Mark chapter 14 and 15. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the blessing for your blessing upon your word today. Father, we want to hear from you, and we believe that your word speaks. It's the word of God. So as I communicate God's word this morning, I pray that, God, you will remove my opinions, and I pray you will remove my own ideas, and may I really truly communicate what you want communicated, because I'm speaking your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first group of rebels I want to look at here are the religious 
rebels. And so you can see on the screen, I put a definition up for you. A religious rebel is one who hides his rebellion to God behind the mask of religion. So if you want to get a pen and a piece of paper and write this down, that would be great. A religious rebel is one who hides his rebellion to God behind the mask of religion. That's a great description, I think, of these religious leaders right here. I mean, here were people who were celebrating the Passover, one of the most religious, um, sacred ceremonies and feasts Israel had. And so externally, they looked like great religious people. But then they met in the middle of the night in an illegal, with an illegal trial. They lied about Jesus. They, they had people falsely accuse Jesus. And so here are people who have the mask of religion, but deep down their hearts were evil and wicked. So we're just going to start in Mark chapter 14. I've already preached through this text, but I want to highlight this because it will launch us into Mark 15. So look at Mark 14, verse 60. Again, this is Jesus here standing before the high priest. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed, or the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. As we talked about a few weeks ago, here Jesus wasn't just confessing that he was the Messiah, King of Israel. He was actually going further. He was claiming to be God. In fact, you can see that in the first two words there, verse 62, when he responds and he says, I am. And here Jesus is identifying himself as the great I am. In fact, Jesus uh, said earlier in his ministry, John chapter 8, verse 58, he responded in the temple to the religious people and the, the crowds and the religious leaders. He said, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So here is Jesus saying, I pre-existed Abraham. In fact, I'm the same God who spoke to Moses and said, my name is I am the everlasting one. So Jesus claimed this name, and then, he, and then he goes on to quote two passages in verse 62. First was Psalm 110, 110. You can see that in verse 62. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. When, by quoting this psalm, Jesus identified himself as the Messiah King. And then the next phrase, and coming with the clouds of heaven, is a quote from Daniel 7. And this this text speaks of the ancient of days whose everlasting dominion is over all people and nations and languages. So, so Jesus made it clear. He's a king, but he's a king above all kings. He's actually God himself. And, and as, as Jesus declares this, how should those religious leaders have responded to Jesus and his claims? They should have, at that moment, fallen down before him and, and bowed in repentance and submitted themselves to the Lord. They should have had an Isaiah 6 moment. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and they should have, they should have fallen down like 
like Isaiah did and said, Woe is me, I'm a man undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. But, but notice how they responded in, instead. Look at verse 64. They respond by rejecting him in rebellion. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. The Sanhedrin and their Jewish followers were, were rebelling and rejecting Jesus as king. They claimed to follow the law. They presented themselves as righteous people who are submitted to the Lord. But they actually were living in rebellion against the Lord. Why did they reject Jesus? It doesn't make sense. These were the ones who were supposed to welcome him. Why did they reject Jesus as their king? And I think the answer is for the same reason that we all rebel against God. Because we are the kings of our own hearts. We are the kings of our hearts. They, they were the kings of their own hearts. They actually had had lifted themselves as the rulers of their life. And so when God himself comes into their presence, they didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted self-rule. And this really is the heart of every sin against God. It's, it's a desire to, to have yourself be ruling, to do what you want to do in life. Just, just think about how we, how we sin against God. Think about someone like a thief. When a thief steals, why does he steal? He wants something for himself. Think about a child who, who disobeys. Why does, a, why does a child disobey? Well, they, they want to put themselves as the ruler. They, in some sense, rule over their parents in their disobedience. But ultimately, it's actually a rejection of God himself. So God was, was not their king. And that's why they didn't accept him as king when he came. They were their own rulers. They ruled their own hearts. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. At some point, they should have got that and thought, something's going on here that maybe I should pay attention to. But instead, they mocked him and rejected him. And isn't it interesting? The first ones to reject Jesus were the religious leaders. Sometimes we automatically think that, well, if you're a religious person and you're a good person and you're devout, then, then, then you're not living in rebellion against God. Like, don't, aren't religious people... God wants, and sometimes we can think that I'm a good person, I'm religious, so look what I do. I have good deeds, right? But religion, trying to be a good person, can only mask your true heart of rebellion. You need someone to come into your life and forgive your sin and cleanse your heart, and that person is Jesus. Religion can't do that. You can't do that. Sanhedrin, they wanted Jesus dead, but they could not legally they could not execute someone like this. So they carried out their own form of punishment. They mocked Jesus. They beat Jesus. Then they handed him over to the Roman governor. So look down in chapter 15, verse 1. This is probably about 5 in the morning when they handed Jesus over to Pilate. Verse 1 says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Their accusation against Jesus in the Jewish trial was 
blasphemy. But the Sanhedrin knew that if they were to present this to Pilate, that, that Pilate wouldn't do anything about this. I mean, if someone comes and claims to be God, what do you do? It's not illegal. You Actually, you'd probably say they're insane, right? And so that's probably what Pilate would do. So they actually decided to paint Jesus as one who claimed to be a king and challenged the authority of Rome and the king of Rome, which is Caesar. So look at verse 2. Pilate asked him, and he said, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Again, the main accusation against Jesus was that he was a king, and they wanted to shape that with false accusations to guarantee his demise was going to be death. Now, Mark doesn't speak of those accusations, but Luke 23, verse 2, says this, that they accused him of this. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So this claim was that Jesus had defied the authority of Caesar by saying, you should not pay your taxes. Now, was that true? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus said the exact opposite. But this was a serious charge. This is a charge of treason. In fact, in the first century, other Jewish messiahs had, had rebelled like this against Rome. They took up arms and they tried to have a revolt against Rome. Rome subdued, subdued them and then they executed them. In fact, Barabbas, as we'll see later on in our text, Barabbas could have been one of those people. Our text says that he um, caused an insurrection and he murdered someone. So it could be in, in that context that he was, he was trying to to come against Rome, and, and he had a rebellion there in Jerusalem. And Jesus stands in stark contrast to all those other zealots and messiahs. They came and used violence. They defended themselves with swords, probably with words, but Jesus did not fight. He went, as the Bible says, as a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus stood before his accusers without one word of defense. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now the other gospel authors give more details about Pilate's encounter with Jesus. The gospel of John records that Jesus actually replied at some point, to Peter in a private place, and so I'll put that up here, John 18. This is a very interesting encounter. I don't have the whole encounter up here, but just kind of the highlights. Verse 36, Jesus answered Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world. So you can see this is all put in the context that he's claiming to be a king. And Pilate got the idea. And the idea was that Jesus wasn't claiming to be a king of this world, it was of a spiritual realm. He was actually claim, claiming to be a God king. And that shocked Pilate, actually caused him to be scared. In verse 37, then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered and said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, they went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him. Pilate asked a lot of questions. This man really intrigued Pilate. Jesus really intrigued him. In fact, he kind of scared him. You can read that in John chapter 18, if you have more time. The more Pilate found out about Jesus, the more he was interested in what was really going on. In fact, you can you know, see Pilate here having somewhat of a philosophical conversation with Jesus. It's like Jesus says you know, that he's the truth. He's like, what is truth? What's interesting about Pilate is that out of everyone, he came the closest to understanding who Jesus was. Of course, he didn't completely understand, but he came the closest. Yet he still proceeded to reject Jesus and condemn him. And so I, I've called him the, the philosophical rebel. The philosophical rebel. The philosophical rebel inquires about the truth, but he never truly submits his heart to God. He inquires about the truth, but he never submits his heart to God. Have you ever met those, those kind of people, or, or maybe you are that kind of person? That's the kind of person who, who loves to talk philosophy, loves to talk about you know, um, religion, maybe even knows um, a lot of theological information, those big words, and, and he can talk it up with the brightest and the best theologians. But, but he actually doesn't submit his heart to Christ. He loves to talk about God, if you want to say it that way. He loves to talk about religion, but he actually doesn't live with Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. I met a person a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to him. And I, when I talk to people about the Lord, I love to ask questions. I love to hear their story and then ask questions to try to understand what they believe before I go into the gospel with them. And I've told you at Lighthouse many times, it's a method I use. And I think it's actually pretty loving to help um, me understand where people are at before I go into the gospel with them. So one person I was talking to, and this, this guy, I found out very quickly, asked him who God was and um, who he believed Jesus to be, and found out very quickly that he had a lot of knowledge of the Bible, knew Hebrew, knew Greek. He, he basically had an amazing theological treatise he gave to me. and it was, So it was clear that he had a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. What was interesting is that he had a particular area that he just had commented on that was clearly unbiblical, but he didn't really address it, just kind of moved on and... And so as I'm talking to him about these philosophical things and questions, I thought, you know, before we go any further, I thought I should ask him about that. So I asked him the question. I said, would you say that you're living in obedience to the Lord in regard to this area of your life? And he got really mad at me. In fact, his voice started going up and he started now attacking me and saying, why am I asking him so many questions? And they came to the place where he actually got so mad that eventually he, he left and I didn't wasn't able to talk to him anymore. It was clear that this guy was not living a life of faith in Christ as, as his Lord and his King. Like he could talk it up with the best of them, but when it came to actually what it really looked like in his life, Jesus was just an idea. He was something to talk about, but he was not the King on a daily basis to submit his heart to. He was a philosophical rebel who constantly inquired and discussed the truth, but he never truly submitted. Then look at verse 6. The Bible says, Now at the feast, he was used to releasing to them, for them one prisoner, 
for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Barabbas was a rebel, a murderer. Presumably he murdered while rebelling against the authorities. Verse 7 said he led some type of, was a part of some type of insurrection. And his name was Barabbas, which means son of Abba. And ironically, his first name was Jesus. So, so here's a man who is Jesus Barabbas. Or you could say it this way, Jesus means salvation. Salvation, the son of Abba. So, so Barabbas is a man who actually offers some kind of salvation, right? I mean, he, he was in an insurrection, and, and he, he fought for freedom, for power in some way. And, but he did so through rebellion and murder and insubordination, and it was all very worldly. It was all about the things of this earth, and he did throw, so through his own devices. And so I call Barabbas here a worldly rebel. A worldly rebel is one who fights for his own ambitions and ignores God. Barabbas wanted freedom. And honestly, think about these Jewish people. Could you blame them? They're under the, the thumb of Rome. But Barabbas sought and offered freedom and the strength of himself and through his own wicked devices. And before Barabbas was Jesus. I mean, standing there was, was Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, again, means salvation. He was named that on purpose. God had the angel tell uh, Joseph to name him Jesus. So salvation is offered through Jesus, and he is the true son of Abba, the true son of the Father. And Pilate gave him a choice. Do you want Jesus, or do you want Jesus Barabbas? Which savior do you want? Do you want the one that's the worldly savior, or do you want the one that can save your soul? Of course, Pilate didn't say that because he didn't believe that, but that's what he was offering. Verse 8, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas, Instead, I think we should pause and recognize that this is a great picture of the substitutionary death of Christ. Here was a man who deserved to die for his sin, and here was Jesus who died in his place. Barabbas was set free while Jesus was condemned. And in verse 12, and, a Pilate, and Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? Pilate, again, is recognizing Jesus is holy, is blameless. He hasn't done anything that's worthy of death. But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Verse 15, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The text makes clear, Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus was holy, he was blameless, he was pure. But the crowd demanded his death, so mob rule ran the day, won the day. 
Therefore, Pilate handed him over to soldiers to scourge him. And we're going to focus more on the suffering of Christ next week. But let me just comment on this scourging. Scourging was, was common for first century criminals, especially ones who came against the state, against Rome. The Roman flogging was especially brutal. Two Roman guards would stand on either side of the victim as the, as, or the criminal as the criminal was, was stretched out over a pole. They used whips called a scorpion. This was a whip that was made of leather straps and was braided with sharp rocks and metal and bone. A third century historian, he described it this way. He says, the sufferers' veins were laid bare and their very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Some prisoners even died before they made it to the cross. And so Jesus was flogged. And again, next week we'll look at the suffering of Christ, but it's good to remember at this moment, as the, the um, scripture was read here by, I think it was Ireland that read Isaiah 56, the prophet said, I will give his back to those who struck me. So this is something that Jesus is doing for us. He did for us. This was Jesus' choice to suffer in your place. Now think about how, how callous a person would have to be to inflict this kind of torture. Roman soldiers flogged him and then they mocked him. You could say they rejected him as a king with their limited understanding, but still they rejected him. And look at verse 16. The soldiers then after that led him away inside the palace, and that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. In this text, we see these soldiers torturing Jesus. It's a whole battalion. That's about probably 300 to 600 soldiers. So we're not just talking about a couple people. I mean, here's, here were 300 to 600 soldiers coming down on Jesus. And notice they're mocking him as a king. They made a crown of thorns and they, they gave him a staff. And they took that staff and they beat him on the head. They took a cloak, a purple cloak, and they draped it over him. And they saluted him as the king of the Jews. They spit on him and they rejected him as a king. So here we see people living in rebellion against God, and very openly living in rebellion against God. And I call this one here the, the callous rebel. This is one who defies God in just open rebellion. They just don't care. They, they shake their fists in the face of God, and they really don't care about the Lord. They flaunt their sin. They mock the Lord. Uh, I think it was either this past week or the week before, I, I saw that was it was... Trending that these celebrities were singing the song Imagine, which is honestly one of the dumbest songs I think I've ever heard. But it's, uh, it's Imagine by John Lennon, I think it's what it's called. And so I listened to a couple of them, a couple, uh, of them sing it, and I couldn't listen to it much longer. But that song is really a song that just screams out, I reject God. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine there's no God. 
And, and, and that's really what you see here. It's, that's a callous rebel. It's like, I'm just going to shake my fist in God's face. I'm going to imagine not even real. And there's really no consequence for my sin. And then verse 20, they led him out to crucify him. Look at verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And verse 21 here describes a man named Simon who was from northern Africa, from Cyrene. And here was a man who, who seemed oblivious to what was happening, you know, probably was there for the festival, and he's from a far country. But he was compelled to take the cross of Jesus. The cross would have been a cross beam that they would have um, mounted onto a tree or to a post outside the city there to crucify him on. So here's a guy that I'm calling a com compliant rebel. He, he took the path of, of least resistance, but still rejected, rejected Christ. Here's a guy who was just going about his business. Maybe he was just oblivious to everything that was happening. We don't really know. But he was forced to take the cross. And, and he could have said no. He could have rejected that. Of course, that would have meant his life was probably going to be in jeopardy. And he went along with what he was supposed to do because it was the easiest and it was the, the safest route. I mean, if you look at Simon, that's what it seems like he was doing. Now, I'd probably say this, this is probably most people, many people in our world today. They have their life. They, they live it the way they live because that's how they were told to live it. Or they believe what they believe because that's how they grew up and that's what they were taught. And, and like everybody else, they break God's laws, but, they, but they're really just living in the way that's the path of least resistance. It's like, this is, this is how I'm living because I want a long life, and I want to live as long as I can, and whatever I can do. But they really just don't even think about God, and they really um, live a life of lawlessness about, um, against God, but just go their own way. And there's this sense where they're just compliant. It's like, whatever I can do, just get along in life, but they don't really truly submit their heart to Jesus Christ. So all these different people that are around Christ in one form or another, they're, they're rejecting him. Maybe not overtly rejecting him. Some are, some aren't. But look at verse 22. The Bible says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with, with myrrh, and he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, or about nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may, we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So again, they, they clearly recognized his claim to be the Messiah, and all these different individuals are rejecting him. Instead of bowing before him, they mock him. At the cross, I think, again, we see almost every type of rebel that we saw previously. We, we see here the religious rebels are again there. They're hiding behind the rebellion to God, behind the mask of their religion. You can see that in verse 31. They mock Jesus. You know, he saved others. He can't save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They, they mocked. Believe. We'll believe if you, if you prove it. Come down off the cross. But they never would do that because Jesus was not their king. God was not their king. They were their own kings and they would not dethrone themselves. And then there were the worldly rebels. You can see in verse 32, there were those who hung next to him on the cross. Those were the men who, who fought for their own ambition, ignored God. Maybe they were friends or maybe even partners with Barabbas. Think of the jealousy they probably had. Barabbas was set free and they weren't. And then there was the callous rebel who openly defied the king in his vile rebellion. These soldiers stood around and they mocked Jesus. There were the compliant rebels, some who, who took the path of least resistance by just standing there and watching Jesus, some who joined in and mocked along with the religious leaders. So you see all these people rebelling against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he's on this cross. And what we see was actually God's plan. God used the, the evil that they intended and he predicted that it would happen for the good of mankind. Isaiah 53.3, speaking of the one to come, the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So this rejection was, was prophesied. It was going to happen, and here we see it happening in Mark chapter 15. This was the plan of God. It was necessary for Jesus to come as king and then to be rejected as king. And there's one more person in this text that rejects Jesus. Who is that person? Who's the person that rejected Jesus as well? Do you know who that is? Well, it's the, the loving Father. His loving Father in heaven. He rejected Jesus while Jesus atoned for sin. He rejected Jesus while he atoned for sin. Look at verse 33. When the sixth hour, that's noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All humanity rejected Jesus, and the final blow to Jesus was that his own father rejected him. His own father abandoned him. At noon, the sky grew dark, and for three hours, Jesus faced the abandonment from, of his father. This harkens back to the, the first Passover, in the middle of the night, when it was dark, the death angel passed over, and so during this time of darkness, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ himself, is on that cross, and he's suffering under the wrath of God for the sins of the world. For three hours, Jesus experienced the spiritual death penalty for sins. And notice his cry in verse 34. Notice his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this was the cry of sorrow for loss of fellowship with his father. This is really the cry, I think, of hell. It's the cry of a person that says, why, why am I forsaken from God? 
I think honestly right now in, in hell, as people are suffering for sin, it's the, the pain of, of their bodies isn't the worst part. I think it's the separation that they have from God. And I think this is the cry of someone in hell says, why have you forsaken me? Why am I? And they know the answer. What's the answer? What was the answer for Jesus? Why, why was his father, why did he abandon him? It's because he was suffering for the sin of the world. So Jesus was, was not asking, like, I really don't know the answer to this question. He was, he was just crying out to his father because he experienced the loss of this unending fellowship that he had. This was the most painful thing that he could go through, and this is the most painful thing a person can go through. This is really what hell is. And that's what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. At that appointed time, Jesus chose to be rejected so that we could be accepted. Again, listen to Isaiah 53. Again, remember this is written 700 years before Jesus came as a baby. In fact, if you go over to Israel, there's a scriptorium. You can actually look. I don't know if they have the actual scroll out, but they have copies of it. And there's actually a copy of a scroll over there that was 100 to 200 years before Christ. And here's the prophecy, and it says this. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We're all rebels against God. And the Lord has laid on him. So God the Father laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And yet it was the will, verse 10, of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So here's Jesus. And he was rejected by his loving Father. Now that might seem odd to say it that way. Why, why is he a loving father? I heard a pastor say once that he was on a plane with a lady and he was giving this lady the gospel. And this lady says, I could never believe in Jesus. Why would a father, why would a father punish his son like God the Father punished Jesus? Why would he do that? And the pastor said, well, it must have been for a very important reason. And the lady said, well, what, what could that possibly have been? And he said, because God wanted to rescue the souls of humanity because God loves you. The very beginning, we went through a verse uh, with puppets and with the kids, and it was John 3, 16. What, this, this is a verse that is probably one of the most common verses that people know, but it's, I think it's one of the most profound. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, so why did God send the Son into the world? Because he loves the people. And then verse 35, John 3, 16, John 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son. He didn't, he didn't send his Son because he didn't love the Son. He actually loves the Son, and that's why he sent the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, as we conclude here this morning, I want to remind us that we're all rebels before God. 
Each one of us deserves the wrath of God forever separated from him in hell. And God is just. He must punish sin. But as, as John 3 tells us, he's also a loving father. And he loved us so much, he sent his son to die in our place. And, and the Bible promises if you, if you turn from your own sin and you repent and you turn to Jesus and you believe in Jesus, that he will give you the gift of eternal life. But he also promises that if you continue to live a life as a rebel and reject his son, Jesus Christ, that you actually will experience the wrath of God forever in eternity. Jesus died experiencing the wrath of God for your sin. And he, he calls you to come and believe in him, to turn from what you believe and how you think, and to, to give your life to Jesus Christ, to submit to him as your Lord and your Savior. But if you say, I, I just want to keep living my life my way, you will experience the wrath of God. Maybe you're a righteous rebel. And you hide behind your religion and think, well, this is going to make me good enough for God. And, but your sin still remains. Maybe you're a philosophical rebel. You inquire about the truth, but you never really truly submit to Jesus as the king. Maybe you're the worldly rebel. You fight for your own ambitions and you just kind of ignore God. Life's just about what's happening on this earth. Or the callous rebel. You just openly defy God in vile rebellion. Or you're the compliant rebel. You just... Live life however you think. Whatever's the easiest path, path of least resistance. I think you find a lot of children and youth are in this particular um, category, especially those who grew up in a Christian home. It's just like, well, I'll, just, I'll just do this because this is the easiest way to live life. But Christ's call is for, for you to turn from being a rebel against God to being a child of God. And turn in faith to Jesus who was rejected on the cross for you. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, let me invite you today to right now, wherever you're at, maybe you're in a room full of people, just excuse yourself and go to a room and just cry out to the Lord and cry out to him as your Lord and your Savior. Submit to him as king today. And, and Christian, I want to encourage us. Jesus is the king. And if you're in Christ, then you have eternal life. You have that now. You got it when you first believed. And you are secure in the Lord, and he is your king. And everything that's happening around us, he actually is working in those things. We actually can trust that he's working in us, he's working through us, <clears throat> through us, and it's a gospel work. God is doing a gospel work. And so let me encourage us as Lighthouse Bible Church, remember the gospel work that God wants to do. We can watch TV and watch the news, and honestly get just swept away with with everything, what's going to happen here, and what's happening in New York, and what's going to happen in California, and we can we can think life is all about the next person who gets the virus, and next next city that closes down. And we can think about life as all about those physical things. And yes, those are important things. So don't get me wrong; we got to be careful. But life is actually about God, and God is doing a work through us. He's doing a work in us first, and he's doing a work through us. And we have to recognize Jesus is the king. And it might be that the work isn't what we expect. It's not what we think would happen. We don't maybe think Jesus would, would rule in a certain way, but God's word makes it clear what Jesus is doing. So church, let me encourage you to come before the Lord, Jesus, look into his word and submit to him as king. And he's not just a king, right? He's our brother. God is our Father. We have His Spirit within us. And so we are, we are in Him. And so we praise the Lord for that. Would you bow your...
your head with me wherever you're at, at home or maybe somewhere else, would you bow your head as we go to the Lord? And I'm going to encourage you in here, encourage you out there, if you need the Lord to cry out to him now. And Christian, I ask you to pray in your heart to the Lord and thank him. Thank Jesus for what he's done for us. In fact, the next two songs we're going to sing are, are those kind of songs of just praise to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the plan of God, your plan, God, that sent Jesus to this world. I don't think we can even say it any better, better than John 3.16, that you love the world so much that you sent your only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a promise. What an amazing promise that you want us to believe and also for us to tell. So I pray for our church as, as there are people that are lonely and they're looking for purpose and maybe as they're even somewhat they're suffering and, and need right now, maybe financial need, maybe physical need. God, I pray for our church that we will look beyond just the physical and we'll see God the eternal. We'll have an eternal perspective and we won't just look at the things that are temporal, but we'll look at the things we we'll look at the things that are not seen, and God will trust you during these, these times. And Jesus trusts that you are our king, and that you rule righteously, and you are doing a gospel work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing, I think, I will glory my redeemer. Right? Here we go. We're going to sing, I will glory my redeemer. Again, yeah, please sing at home if you're able to follow along with us here, and uh, we'll sing as two families together, and we'll rejoice as one in the Lord for what Jesus has done for us. Let's sing.
The last song we're doing is a song, Hallelujah for the Cross. And I want to remind you again about tonight. Tonight, starting at 7 o'clock for the church on Zoom, we're going through a, a series that I do with some of the local churches as we minister. The series is called A Deeper Life Series. It's how to actually go deeper with God through the Word of God. And not just how to, have, how to read your Bible, but how to have personal, dynamic devotions. And uh, so I want to encourage you at 7 o'clock to join in tonight at Zoom, with Zoom and uh, look forward to what God's going to do through that.